There goes a fly ball towards left field. Going back fast is Kennedy. Kennedy gets there, and he takes it. And the Cleveland Indians are the world champions of 1948. And they are leaping joyously as they go off the field. Din is being mobbed as are Lou Boudreau and out in center field, Tucker and Kennedy come running in arm in arm. This is Cleveland's team, a baseball history podcast. A regular look back at professional baseball in Cleveland from 1901 and beyond. Now, here's your host, Guardians team historian, Jeremy Fedor. Hey, Cleveland baseball fans. We are back with another episode of Cleveland's team, a baseball history podcast. And on this episode, we are talking Hall of Fame, more specifically Cleveland players that should be in the Hall of Fame. And again, this kind of ranges pre-1901 to some of the more modern players. And I had the chance to chat with Adam Dorowski. Adam has been with Baseball Reference now for over six years. He's the head of user experience. So anyone that is into baseball history or just Baseball in general knows baseball reference and what a great website that is. However, Adam also hosts a podcast called Building the Ballot. And uh, if you haven't had a chance, I highly recommend checking out his podcast. Um, It really dives into baseball as a whole, obviously. He's not a a, a Cleveland employee. So, um, you know, his uh, look at baseball is is a bit more uh, not in a vacuum. So, again, and then it looks at the early Baseball Hall of Fame ballot. Um, A lot of those Negro League players and other uh, ball players of the different eras, um, not team related like like we're going to talk about so i had a wonderful conversation with adam and we're going to kind of uh go from there and and, and split it up and uh hopefully everyone enjoys before we got started on specific players i did want to ask adam uh, recently as of uh, last year the negro leagues were announced as a major league so baseball reference uh, went back and updated all their stats for players so if you look at you know, Larry Doby, for example, it mentions you know, two World Series titles. Well, one was Negro League World Series. So they've done a great job of updating that. And with that comes new career totals for a lot of guys. And um, especially with these older ballots, you know, going back and, and looking to see the, the full career of these guys, not just you know, the teams we know but more of the well, what was going on in the Negro Leagues and, and the records that these guys had from there and painting that broader picture, which you know I think opens the door then too for that uh, Hall of Fame consideration. Yeah, it certainly has. Uh, I mean, stats talk. Those are the, the the ways that you document stories, and the fact that we have those now in this accessible format, uh, and it includes just you know the the major the quote unquote major league. Uh, well, they are major league uh, stats for the Negro League, so they're playing against other major league teams. We're not including like the barnstorming games that the the Homestead Graders would play against everybody. This is this is the top 
games against the other top teams. So we know that these are legit stats. We have, uh, this is from the Seamheads Negro League database. They constructed their database from full box scores. So if they found just a, a summary of a game, they didn't include it. This had to have uh, pitching stats, hitting stats, defensive stats. We needed to have hits for, hits allowed, home runs for, home runs allowed. So these are complete stats for the games that we have. But as I'm sure we'll, we'll touch on with some candidates, we don't have uh, a complete log of games for every player yet, but the games that we do have are complete. And with that, we're going to kick it back to the late 1870s, 1880s with the Cleveland Blues, and one of those players being Jack Glasscock, who was a shortstop that spent six seasons in Cleveland from 1879 to 1884. Glasscock was a native of West Virginia and happened to pick up the fun nickname Pebbly Jack. Uh, that was because during games he would see uh, rocks in the infield and kind of toss them aside. Glasscock was born in 1857, so pre-Civil War, and ended up dying in 1947. Yeah, we can go way back to the Cleveland Blues if you'd like. So in the National League, they they played just from 1879 to 1884. Uh, they disbanded after 1884 because uh, the Brooklyn Grays uh, owner bought the team, took some of the players, and just kind of disbanded the team. But uh, there is actually one Hall of Famer who played for the Cleveland Blues, and that is Ned Hanlon, who was in as a manager uh, much later. He played his rookie season with the Blues, uh, so didn't do too much there. But there are actually a, a handful of candidates from the, the Blues that are kind of interesting. Um, and one of them is is Jack Glasscock, which is uh, I'm also on the Sabre 19th Century Overlooked Legend Committee, and he was our selection just a few years back as one of the best 19th century players not in the Hall of Fame. And he was just one of those players who did everything well. He was a great defender at shortstop, possibly the the best defensive uh, shortstop in the 19th century. Great hitter, too. He hit 290 for his career. You know, he wasn't a a huge offensive star, but he held his own for a a slick fielding shortstop, that's for sure. And in the shorter seasons of the 19th century, uh, using our modern metrics, that got him above 60 war, which is not easy to do in those, like, his career started in 1879. So he's a one of those guys where he's this rare uh now if you're looking at it in terms of modern metrics like war he's a plus 150 run hitter and a plus 150 run defender and those are super rare players so you're looking at like alan trammell with maybe a little bit more of a defensive pedigree too and you know how good are the old defensive metrics from the 19th century that's obviously a question that you have to ask when looking into guys like this and you just kind of look at the defensive black ink like the where he led the league in short stops and that was games twice put outs twice assists six times double plays four times range factor five times fielding percentage six times and then just errors once so it, it kind of stands up when you look at it that way too and in our conversation it was really free-flowing and it got me thinking of you know he mentions being part of these overlooked committees um you know what makes a guy overlooked and when you think about the history of the hall of fame you know opening in the uh, 1930s baseball been played for a long, long while before that so you have this large backlog of players um that are Hall of Fame worthy, but you also have the players that were more recent in memory, the Babe Ruths and Walter Johnsons that are the slam dunk, get fans to Cooperstown and and visit the museum. So uh, again, I asked Adam on his opinion on all that. Right, I think it's just because 
you know, the hall, like you said, was is 1930s and they had they were starting from scratch. They had this enormous backlog of players to put in. So the players that they put in were, you know, the Babe Ruths and the Ty Cobbs that recently retired and obviously were among the very best players in the history of the game. And then the only players they really looked at for the 19th century at that point were there were a couple pioneers, but, you know, it was the guys like Cy Young and Cap Anson who had these uh, numbers and histories that just popped off the page. So over time, the Veterans Committee would start adding players. uh, But a lot of times those were players that the people on the committee remembered. And as more time passed, then people forgot about Jack Glasscock and some other players like Charlie Bennett and, and uh, Bill Dallin, who are not uh, Cleveland players, but were also overlooked in a similar manner. So it's not just Jack in this sense. I think Jack is certainly one of the best, but over time, you know, there's, there's no cronyism for, for guys that have been, you know, long dead. So it's, it's just one of those things where uh, as more time passes, these players are forgotten, but there are some good signs. Deacon white was inducted back in 2013. He's one of the players that the hall forgot in 1936. And uh, hopefully uh, in the next few decades, we'll get players like Jack Glasscock in as well. And one gentleman Adam mentioned was Deacon white. And I'm a big fan of Deacon. He was a member of the early four city teams of the national association and really the first superstar uh, ball player in Cleveland. I believe he was a 2013 induction into the hall of fame. So, you know, they're still working to get these guys into the hall of fame. And Deacon was a very worthwhile choice. Now he had been dead for, it wasn't a hundred years, but you know, closer to that than not. Um, but nevertheless, uh, yeah, Deacon was a, a shining example of some of the work that these committees helped to elevate these players. Another Hall of Fame candidate from that Blues team is Jim McCormick. Uh, Jim also played six years in Cleveland. And if you look at his baseball reference page, he led the league in, in quite a few pitching stats. He was born in 1856, another pre-Civil War, uh, but he was born in Glasgow, so not in the country. Uh, But then he ended up dying in 1918 in Patterson, New Jersey. And again, his career was 1878 to 1887. And again, Adam believes McCormick had a decent shot to to maybe find some future uh, Hall of Fame recognition. Yeah, a big one would be Jim McCormick, and uh, he's he was the ace of the Blues for all of their seasons, although he jumped to the Union, Asso- uh, Union Association in 1884, much like uh, Jack Glasscock and a few other players did as well. So that outlaw league came in and a, a bunch of players jumped over there mid-1884, and then after that season, that's when the Blues disbanded. But yeah, McCormick joined uh, for their first season. He was the manager, actually, at first, even though it was he was just a rookie. Uh, one of those pitchers who just accumulated stats for a not very good team. So he had like 265 wins. He actually has over 75 war. He's it's after Roger Clemens. He's like the top pitcher outside of the hall of fame in terms of war. And a lot of 19th century pitchers just compile stats because they pitched every single day. Although I learned something about Jim McCormick recently that kind of makes me change my mind about him a little bit. So I was never super high on McCormick, even though he's really great. But at 31, his career ended and I was like, oh, well, he just didn't last long because his arm got tired or something. But in, in reality, it was because his wife was sick at the time. And uh, he ended up stopping his career to, to take care of her. And she ended up passing away. And then he just from there, he raised his two kids and worked at a saloon. So you know, it's not that he flamed out. It's just that he, you know, was taking care of his family, which 
kind of makes me reframe how I think about his his shorter career a little, little bit. But yeah, uh, other than that, already 75 war, 265 wins, uh, a very solid ERA for his time. If 19th century pitchers belong in the Hall of Fame, uh, which several of them are already in, then Jim McCormick is certainly in that conversation. Now we're finally going to get into the American League. And one of the players that Adam actually covers in his podcast is Wes Farrell. Farrell was born uh, 1908 and died in 1976, but spent from 1927 to 1933 with Cleveland. And Farrell was a pitcher, had a, a great arm, but he was also noted as probably one of the best hitting pitchers, not named Babe Ruth. Um, Farrell, I think he has some franchise records for us in terms of most home runs hit by a pitcher. And uh, I think he'd even pinch hit for for home runs. Um, but he also had just a, a terrible attitude in terms of, of uh, temper. He When he got riled up, you didn't want to be around him. Um, but again, played for Cleveland with seven seasons before bouncing around with a few other teams. Yeah, he made my top 10 list of, of players from that era, which again, we, we covered over a hundred players and there's like a ton of players from the Negro leagues that, that need to be considered. But in terms of like the white major leagues from before 1950, Wes Farrell is certainly one of the very best candidates outside the hall of fame. So how can I say this about a pitcher with a 4.04 ERA? Once again, it's context. You need lots of context for Wes Farrell. He gave up a lot of runs. Uh, he didn't give up quite as many runs in his peak. He got hurt uh, around age 30. And after that, his numbers were atrocious, which really dragged up his career ERA. But when you look at his peak and he had, you know, ERA is in the three and a half range, but you have to consider like somebody's got a pitch to like these Ruth and Gehrig lineups and Wes Farrell outside of Lefty Grove was probably the best one from that era to do that in the American league. And not only all of that, but he was also a excellent hitter, uh, just hit a ton of home runs for a pitcher, but we're talking a league average hitter. And we're talking league average in the, the big 1930s. So we're talking like 280 average, uh, very high slugging percentage. I think it was over 450 or something like that. So that helped him get some monster seasons when you combine his pitching and his hitting. Like uh, I'll look at his three best years from Cleveland here. Uh, we'll just go with 30, 31, and 32. Like in 1930, he had 8.3 war as a pitcher, but he also hit 297 and slugged 415 to, to bump it up to 9.4 war. Uh, in 1931, uh, he had 22 wins uh, and a 3.75 ERA, which when you compare it to league average, that was actually a 123 ERA plus, but he hit 319 with a 373 OBP, a 162 OBS plus. So it, it brings it up to an eight war year. So he had a shorter career because of the arm injury. But if you look at his peak, it, it's, it almost looks like a Koufax like career because he had these really, really high war totals for complete seasons when you combine his pitching and hitting. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And another thing about Farrell is he just plays in that 
spot in Cleveland history post, uh, you know, Tris Speaker, but before Bob Feller comes in, that's kind of a, a lost history. And uh, with that, we will be right back after uh, this quick break. And we're back. <clears throat> and again, speaking with Adam, you know, we kind of point out how uh, much of an anomaly, I guess, Wes Farrell was with his ability to hit at such a, uh, a good clip. Yeah, certainly. Uh, and, you know, he had a 60 war uh, total in a relatively short career, 48.8 of that was pitching. And then all the rest of it came from that hitting, which, you know, getting league average uh, offense from the pitcher position really adds to the, the team's value there. So in terms of like uh, when I was on my podcast talking with Jay Jaffe about him and he said in terms of like total net runs allowed, you know, if you add back the number of the runs that he provided on offense, his ERA just becomes even better. And he's he's an interesting candidate just because there's nobody really like him. Uh, there were some, you know, in, in the Negro Leagues with like Bullet Rogan and and uh, Martin DeHigo, but Farrell was he wasn't a DH because obviously there, there was no DH. They tried him in the outfield once, didn't really work. But every fifth day and, you know, pinch hitting all the time, he was hitting his home runs and just a super unique player and one I would love to see in the Hall of Fame. And of course, what is Hall of Fame talk without mentioning Shoeless Joe Jackson? Joe is a member of our Hall of Fame, but clearly is not in Cooperstown. So I had to throw that one out there. Yeah, his best seasons, I don't think people realize, came in Cleveland. He had that, you know, I think his yes, career OPS plus is 170, but with Cleveland, it was 182. He was getting war at a, a 8.4 war per 162 game clip with Cleveland. His best seasons certainly came there. Uh, he was great in Chicago as well, of course. It's it's tough to talk about Shoeless Joe. I mean, like, if he's eligible, he's an absolute Hall of Famer, but he's not eligible. I mean, there's there's some question about whether he should have been banned, but I, I don't have enough authority to speak on that. But uh, as long as he's banned, I mean, obviously I can't say that he should be in, but if if he were to be unbanned, uh, he's, he's an easy pick and should go to the front of the line. Next up is one of my favorite players that you know I think really should be in the Hall of Fame, and that's Mel Harder. Harder had a 20-year career with Cleveland from 1928 to uh, 1947, and then after that became pitching coach from 1948 to 1963. And he's just got this fascinating career, uh, both as a player and as a, a coach, because you look at some of these guys, uh, when he was pitching coach, I mean, Feller, Lemon, Wynn, and all the way down to Sam McDowell. Um, so I think, you know, the, the, maybe the playing stats necessarily don't back it up as a slam dunk Hall of Fame, but I think his his entire career from pitcher to coach is uh, you know, really phenomenal. And, you know, also has these other... Um, Aspects He pitched 10 or more innings in an all-star game without allowing runs. So, again, that's a record, not all in the same game. Um, and he's the only player to have his number retired for us that uh, isn't in the Hall of Fame. But he really could be a, a easy consideration, at least I think. And, again, I'm heavily biased towards adding more Cleveland players to the Hall of Fame. Yeah, uh, honestly, I had never really thought about 
Mel Harder much as a Hall of Fame candidate until you had mentioned you would like to talk about him. So I dug into it a little bit more and found some interesting things like he's the only player who played 20 years uh, with one club that's not in the Hall of Fame. And then the other side of his career, of course, he's the only player, according to Wikipedia, who played 20 years as a pitcher and then had 20 years as a pitching coach. So I was thinking about the pitching coach thing a little bit. And uh, the timing was great because uh, there's a great podcast called This Week in Baseball History run by uh, Bill Parker and Michael Bates. And they recently covered Johnny Saint. And at the end, they were saying, well, if if you think about the totality of his career, you know, as a pitching coach, maybe he starts to creep into that conversation. And they said, you know, too bad there's nobody that was on that Joe Torre level already as a player, where when you consider his pitching coach or hitting coach career, that would push him over the line. And you know, I started digging into lists of some of the best pitching coaches of all time. And uh, Mel Harder actually has to be in that conversation among the best players to then have a great career as a pitching coach. Um, I run a, stat, a site called the Hall of Stats, and we assign a single numerical value to every player's Hall of Fame case, or do our best to, where if you reach 100, you're a Hall of Famer. If not, you're you're out. And it's based on the, the number of players that are currently in the Hall of Fame. Mel Harder actually got to 84, which is uh, pretty close. It's it's uh, There are a lot of Hall of Famers with a lower rating than that. And a lot from his era, to be completely honest, too. So... To, to think that uh, he did enough as a pitching coach to to add, you know, 16 points to that, if you're looking at it in a purely analytical way, I don't think it's a, that big of a stretch. And there's a couple other candidates like uh, Mel Stottlemyre might count under that as well. He had a 72 hall rating. So, again, not not up there with with. Um, uh, with Mel Harder, but, you know, kind of close. Harry Brasheen from the Cardinals is a same situation. Uh, so I don't think it's as far fetched as as. I thought it was maybe, you know, three weeks ago, but uh, yeah, it, it, when considering the totality and if you're going to talk about pitching coaches, then I think you got to consider Mel Harder. One of my favorite bits of trivia about Mel Harder, and again, trivia doesn't get you into the Hall of Fame, um, but it's a nice roundabout uh, aspect of history is he was the pitcher that threw out the first pitch at Municipal Stadium, and he also closed out Municipal Stadium with the final pitch when the ballpark or the stadium was uh, done with baseball. And then there's a great photograph of Mel and uh, Charlie Maggie and Sandy Alomar um, opening up you know, what was that soon to be Jacobs field. They were on the, the construction site. And one of those pictures got used for one of the final three game tickets uh, at municipal stadium. So Mel has a very important spot in Cleveland baseball history. And with that, we're going to move into the Cleveland Buckeyes of a Negro league history. And uh, one of those gentlemen is Quincy troop. And uh, you know, Adam mentions him in his other podcast, but Again, if you haven't had a chance to listen to that, well, we're going to talk about him again. So when we were talking about Quincy on uh, our Negro League episode, we kind of gave him an incomplete grade because there weren't that many stats. So since then, I, I wanted to dig into it some more because uh, he was an all-star uh, eight times uh, in five seasons. Uh, the East-West League had a, a couple games a year, some of those years, but he was an all-star in, in a lot of them. We only have 149 major league games for 
for Quincy Troop in a, a pretty long career, which is a very low total. So I started digging into his all-star seasons and his batting averages uh, and you know other stats too uh, range wildly in those seasons. He hit anywhere from 400 down to 184. So I was like, okay, what, what does this even look like? So in 1938, he was an all-star in just 17 games. But uh, the more I dug into it, the more I realized like it's not that he just played 17 games he we only have 18 box scores for his team that year so i started looking at the other seasons uh, seasons as well and like 1945 when when he was an all-star but hit only 184 i was like how can that be he we only have 13 games for him but we only have 21 out of 75 box scores for the Buckeyes. So we have absolutely no idea what he looked like for that whole career. And it's the same thing. The next year, 46, he was an all-star, but we only have 14 out of 66 box scores. Uh, 47, we only have 12 games, but he hit 304, but we only have 16 out of the 54 games. And then in 48, we only have eight games and uh, we only, uh, he only has eight games, but uh, Cleveland on, we only have 12 out of the 74 box scores. So it looks like Troop only played 63 out of 306 games, but it's really 63 out of 81 because we don't have the rest of those box scores to know whether he played and what he did do in those games. And then uh, in his 20s, too, we don't have a ton of games because he played with the Monarchs when they were in the independent leagues. So those aren't counted uh, in his major league stats at this time. He played, uh, he barnstormed with Satchel Page on the the Bismarck Club over in, in uh, he played a lot in the, the Northwest there. And uh, it, was, yeah, it was an integrated semi-pro team in North Dakota. So he, he was making more money playing with Satchel than he would playing in the major leagues as well. Uh, played five seasons in Mexico, but, and we have actually more stats there. We have 377 games there and, you know, I hit 313, slugged 519 and had 146 OPS plus. So the more you dig into this, it's, you start to realize, okay, that's why he was an all-star this many times. And maybe this is why we should be considering him as a hall of famer. Um, there's a, another alternate hall of fame called the hall of merit where they, it's a bunch of uh, history nerds and stat nerds that vote on uh, the hall of fame based purely on merit. And they do have Quincy troop in there. So that's another thing that made me consider his, his uh, career even more. Uh, another uh, Sabre member, Eric Shalek uh, has been doing some major league equivalents for Negro league players, uh, like trying to take the league quality of the, the seasons that they played on and then normalize them to like a 162 game season and according to his calculations which you know it's it's certainly not a science but he's looking at a troop uh, over a 7,000 played appearance career as like a 48 or catcher which would be number 12 all time for catchers although uh he does have lewis santop and roy campanella a little bit of ahead of him uh, so that would knock him down to to 14 and if you're asking where's josh gibson these mles say well josh gibson would have been a first baseman in the major leagues instead so that that's what happens there so uh again like just as soon as baseball reference uh, added these uh negro league stats it revitalized my interest in baseball research in general, because now I have the Quincy troops to, to look into and decide, you know, what, what, what was this guy all about? Where was he playing? What does that mean? Uh, and it just really hammers home the point that when considering Negro league players for the hall of fame, you have to look at it in a completely different way. Uh, it's not just, you know, you know, we had some of the top players in the Negro leagues playing for military teams where if they were white, they would have been you know, obviously in the major leagues. So it's a totally different thing. Uh, it's a wonderful thing that I've, I've gotten to 
to learn over the last few months. And yeah, Quincy is, is basically the, the poster boy for that. And another member of that Buckeyes team, Sam Jethro, was also uh, another topic of conversation. Yeah, it's and it's really a lot of the same things that I said, although Quincy Troop was older in the 40s there when we don't have the box score. Sam Jethro was a young player uh, with the Buckeyes then. So, you know, we have 155 OPS and five and a half war in 143 games for for Sam Jethro. But that's spread across seven seasons because of the number of games we have. So if you take that five and a half war, and if you actually like spread it over seven seasons, you're like, Oh gosh, actually he had this like seven year peak where he could have had like a 35 war career. And then, you know, he came to to Montreal when he was signed and he hit 322 there with a 385 OBP and 473 slugging the next year. Uh, this I, I don't want to read a whole stat line, but this one's too good in Montreal, AAA. So they're holding this guy back who who had seven great seasons in the New Girl Leagues, a great season in AAA. He's still stuck in AAA in 1949. His line is 153 games, hit 326, 403 OBP, 520 slugging, 207 hits, 34 doubles, 19 triples, 17 home runs, 83 RBI, oh, and 89 stolen bases too. So this is like a guy in AAA who clearly was major league quality, came up in 50 to 52, got a couple of stolen base crowns right away, was a better than league average hitter. But by then he was already in his mid thirties. So, you know, he, he comes up in his mid thirties, he's getting stolen base crowns, but it just makes you wonder like what type of career he would have had if he'd gotten the opportunities that other players do. And again, Eric Schilek's major league uh, equivalents attempt to uh, give him that opportunity. And they have him at nearly 60 war player for his career. So that's a guy that's going to get in the hall of fame conversation. And we'll be back after a short break. And we're back now because this uh, interview was recorded uh, several months ago uh, obviously, the news came out that Minnie Minoso got into the Hall of Fame. So I guess this is kind of a, a moot point in our discussion. Um, but nevertheless, Adam goes into great detail about why he is so Hall of Fame worthy. Uh, Minoso has to get in uh, this winter. I feel like from that early well, he's not actually the early baseball era committee because his career came a little bit later. The Golden Days committee is also meeting, and you have to think that Minoso and uh, Dick Allen would be the the top candidates that would be likely to get in from that ballot. Gosh, what to say about him? He was an all-star in nine seasons, three gold gloves. Uh, one amazing thing about the Negro League stats being added is that that pushes him above that 2000 hit plateau, which is something that, that a lot of uh, hall of fame voters and, and uh, analysts like to see 130 OPS plus also with speed and defense. He was just a five tool player uh, missed a lot of time because of the Negro leagues. Luckily we can add some of that back now, but if you look at his Negro league stats in 111 games, he had three and a half war, that was over three seasons. So you can kind of extrapolate that to, to perhaps, you know, upwards of 10 war instead. Then when he was signed, he went to the minors for a couple of years and absolutely demolished there, but Cleveland was stacked in, in the outfield and he didn't get a chance and it took a, a trade to the white Sox, And then he immediately was rookie of the year runner up and an all-star. 
And another thing I brought up about Minnie was the fact that he played in four decades, which is, you know, just amazing. And Adam had this to say. Yeah, I think those uh, those late career or well, post career played appearances probably hurt Minoso's case for a while there because it, I think it was probably seen more as a gimmick and maybe it detracts from how great a player he actually was. But yeah, I think if you now that we have the Negro League stats and see what he was doing in the minor leagues too, and if we can kind of, you know, he probably was was cheated out of ten WAR. So, and if you add that to what's already uh, at minimum a borderline Hall of Fame career, then I think he should absolutely be in this winter. He was recently, uh, Joe Posnanski just did the, the Baseball 100. He was blogging about it uh, at The Athletic before it uh, turned into a book. And he was counting down to uh, to number one. And when he got to number two, he did Buck O'Neill. And I was like, whoa, how's that not Joe's number one? And then I was like, oh, of course, he hasn't done Minoso yet. Uh, but yeah, he had Minoso at number one uh, out of everyone who's outside of the Hall of Fame. So that... and. Joe puts a lot of time into this stuff. So I, I think he's a great voice to listen to there. I think he absolutely has to get in. Buck O'Neill should also get in as well because the early baseball era committee will hopefully be considering him as well. And our next topic of conversation, I don't think needs any introduction. Um, probably one of the, uh, at least in the Cleveland circle, one of the most talked about uh possible Hall of Famers of an era is Rocky Calavito. So, um, you know, Rocky had some some great numbers in Cleveland, also part of a uh, an infamous trade, but he still uh, holds a lot of uh, lot of weight in Cleveland, a lot of fans still. He's their number one and recently got a statue out in Cleveland's Little Italy. So if you make it out there, you could see the Rocky Calavito statue. And uh, so I posed the question to Adam, you know, is Rocky Hall of Fame worthy? And again, he's a, a non-biased Cleveland, uh, non-Cleveland source. Uh, he, yeah, statistically, um, he doesn't stack up quite as well. Um, it, Rocky's tough. Rocky, like I'm a New Englander, so I can definitely uh, relate to like Mel Harder. Uh, to me, I'm like, well, he's he's your Johnny Pesky. He's the guy that, you know, had the the career that maybe wasn't Hall of Fame worthy, but everything he's done in his life since then screams Hall of Fame, team legend, all of that. Well, Rocky Colavito, um, as a New Englander, I think like, well, if the Hall of Fame has like a Jim Rice, why not a Rocky Colavito? I might see them as uh, more similar in, in value. Uh, Colavito probably had a little bit better of a peak, whereas Rice lasted longer. Again, I mean, it's hard to make a sabermetric case over Colavito, but if Colavito got in on this Golden Days Arabella, I would have absolutely no problem with it because he... I mean, he still had great numbers, 132 OPS plus 374 home runs when that was a big deal. Um, just about four war per 162, six all-star seasons. Uh, I mean, a, a great player. They're, they're, you know, maybe not, you know, the same quality as like a, a Dick Allen or maybe even a Ken Boyer that'll be on the, the Golden Days ballot. But I think uh, Rocky Colavito is on that next level with like the the Gil Hodges at the Maury Wills and and guys like that could absolutely get in like Tony Oliva, that, that type of level. We're going to flash forward now to the 90s and anyone listening to this doesn't need a lecture on how good those 90s teams were and the Hall of Fame 
possible the possible Hall of Fame players that played on those teams. And uh, recently, Jim Tomey just got into the Hall of Fame as our our second player to be uh, uh, selected on the first ballot, other being Bob Feller. But um, another one of those guys that fans are always scratching their head on is why isn't Kenny Lofton in the Hall of Fame? You go look at his numbers, you go to his baseball reference page, and it it is a real head-scratcher. I mean, Kenny played on a loaded team with with big personalities, but again, when it comes down to numbers, uh, you know, Kenny's numbers warranted more than just a one-and-done Hall of Fame ballot. So again, I, I pitched that to Adam, and here was his response. So he's eligible via the Today's Game Era Committee, which meets every two or three years. And um, it's met a couple of times recently, but Kenny hasn't been on the ballot, which I'm sure a lot of people were asking why not. But the way that it works is because he was one and done, he still has to wait the 10 years he would have been on the ballot before he can be considered again. So you can't just drop off the ballot after one year and then get on the Today's Game so that's why he hasn't been on yet. His first time he'll be on is 2023. So, uh, which sounds far away, but it's not because we're considering 2022 this winter. Uh, so after the the early baseball and golden days of this winter, the next winter is going to be Kenny Lofton. Not only his first time he's been considered since he was one and done. And you got to think his chances, even though he was one and done, uh, are, are relatively decent because I don't think that... Well, I said right now, uh, right now I'm saying that I don't think that ballot will be that that uh, deep. But then again, we might also have Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens and Kurt Schilling entering that ballot for the first time. So I'm going to take that back. He might have some interesting names he's competing with. But all right. So let's just skip right to the numbers then. What do the numbers think of Kenny Lofton? Well, everything that I said about Rocky Colavito, well, for Kenny Lofton, it's the exact opposite. The numbers adore Kenny Lofton. So Jaws, Jay Jaffe's system where he looks at wins above replacement and peak uh, puts him as the 10th best center fielder of all time, which if you think about the center fielders in front of him, if that's the speakers, the maze, the mantle, like it's all like the Griffey and all those guys. And then it's Lofton. And that really stands out. Um, so he was a, a great hitter. Uh, 107 OPS plus doesn't look great, but if you look at uh our bat plus, which is our, our new metric. That's a little bit more like WRC plus where it, it maybe is a little kinder to the high OBP guys, which Kenny Lofton was, then it's 113. He had nearly 2,500 hits, nearly a thousand walks, and then the steals over 600 of them. And not only was it the steals because, you know, Brett Butler had a lot of steals, but he was caught a lot. Uh, ooh, that That's relevant because Brett Butler played for Cleveland. Anyway, um, <laughs> He's our 1980s guy. We could talk about him or Brooke Jacoby, but anyway, um, but like in terms of like stolen base percentage, Lofton was at 80. The league average was 69 run scored percentage. So this is when he gets on. How often does he score? His was 42 league average was 31. That's a massive difference. Extra bases taken. So this is going from like first to third or scoring from first on a double. He did it 55% of those opportunities. League average was 42. So that leads to just these incredible numbers for his war components that are based around base running. So he's a 140 runs above average as a hitter, 
And then for base running, it's 79. And he also gets another 23 runs for avoiding the double play because he was so fast and made defenders rush throws and they threw it away. So that's another 102 just for his running. And then in the field, also plus 108 defender. And he's the only player in history with 100 runs in all three of those uh, categories, like the defense, the base running, and the, the hitting, which is incredibly unique and the numbers back it up too with uh, the all-star games. He had six of them, four gold gloves. So it's not like the numbers are pulling this out of the blue. You know, he had, he had better war uh, than Duke Snyder, Andre Dawson. Well, well, yeah, but he lasted a long time, but he had a better war per 162 games than both of them. And even a better war per 162 games than Ken Griffey jr. Which I should, you know, be careful about saying things about Ken Griffey Jr. because sometimes people come at me. But you know, on a on a rate basis, Lofton was right there with him, and on a career basis, he's you know better than Duke Snyder, Andre Dawson, and they those two guys didn't have too much of a problem going in. Neither one was immediate, but and again, yeah, he was one and done. That was an absolute travesty. When looking at one and done Hall of Famers, you you got to think about like uh, uh, Lou Whitaker is going to be on that list. He'll be up for the modern baseball era ballot. But we just had a one and done uh, Ted Simmons get into the Hall of Fame. So it's not a curse on his future chances. Uh, There is a road to Kenny Lofton getting in the Hall of Fame. And I think that there's been enough of an outrage about him being one and done that he's going to have some significant support on this uh, today's game era ballot in 2023. And how do you discuss the 90s teams without taking a look at the most feared power hitter of of that era, and Albert Bell. And again, unfortunately with Albert, he, towards the end of his career, ran into injuries and that uh, limited, you know, the, the last few years of his career and, uh, uh, you know, makes his Hall of Fame case a little trickier. Correct. I th- it's the tough thing with... Um Albert's numbers. I mean, they were video game numbers, but they were in an era where a lot of players were producing video game numbers. So when you look at that context, his OPS plus of 144 is actually a lot uh, lower than I thought it would be. But then you look at it and, you know, even though he played in that era, he only had like a 369 OBP, which, you know, Manny Ramirez is probably 50 points above that or something like that. And th- those things really add up when looking at OPS plus and war and, and things like that. I mean, he had the 10 years of 95 plus RBI. Uh, he had the probably four truly great seasons and then three more above average. The shorter career certainly uh, hurts his numbers, although he did reach 40 war. So it's not like uh, he's a total uh, slouch when it comes to saber metrics. I don't want to make it sound like that. Albert Bell's personality comes into things a lot. Uh, I don't know how to handle that, uh, to be quite honest, because obviously in the last few years, I've done a lot more thinking that, you know, I, I, I need to walk a little bit more in people's shoes before I, you know, jump to any type of, uh, uh, conclusions about that. You know, Dick Allen had a lot of the same issues, uh, that Albert Bell had with, with people thinking that, you know, it's just all about his bad attitude and, and hurting teams more than helping. And, you know, uh, Dick Allen has Mike Schmidt coming to his, his side saying, you know, it was absolutely not like that. So, you know, I, I would have to know a little bit more about how Albert Bell uh, communicated with his teammates and what they thought of him too, before I, I dinged him for that. So, but uh, on the other side, you know, I don't think his metrics quite 
make him a Hall of Fame candidate. He's he's certainly compelling. He had those those really great seasons, and he was a, a huge, famous part of baseball for for a solid chunk of time. Not terribly long, though, of course, because of injury. And now we're going to flash forward a little bit past the 90s, or I guess, you know, late 90s, early 2000s with CC Sabathia. And, uh, you know, CeCe's uh, just retired a couple of years ago and will soon be on the Hall of Fame ballot. Um, fans remember him from some of those dominant performances in Cleveland, whether, uh, you know, it was with, with us or, or with the Yankees. Uh, we seem to see a lot of CC pitching against us, but... You know, talk about remarkable career. Um, so again, threw that out there just to see what Adam was going to say, and it really shouldn't have been any surprise. CC for me is an easy Hall of Famer, just because uh, he put up numbers as a pitcher that it's going to be really hard to see those types of numbers uh, from here on out, just because of the way that pitchers are used. Um, I don't have notes uh, prepped on CC Sabathia, but yeah, he's he's uh, probably a better traditional candidate than statistical candidate even. But I think his stats actually do put him above the borderline. I don't I don't know if he's a slam dunk Hall of Fame. He's, he definitely should be in the Hall of Fame. Um, so, yeah, that's my stance on him. And that's where we're going to end it on this episode of Cleveland's Team at Baseball History Podcast. Again, I want to thank Adam for giving me his time to chat about possible Cleveland Hall of Famers. Give him a follow uh, on Twitter at BaseballTwit and uh, check out his podcast, uh, um, Building the Ballot. Again, if you're really into Hall of Fame talk, he explores you know beyond Cleveland, obviously. So it's always fun if you're a baseball nut just to, to get into these discussions and hearing maybe some names you hadn't heard of before and, and you know, give thought to, oh yeah, this person is deserving. And again, that's the, the beauty of baseball is these conversations we can have about, you know, this guy belongs in and this guy doesn't and, and uh, you know, hashing that out and looking at numbers and it's just, it's fun. It's a nice distraction from, uh, you know, everything else going on in this world. Um, so with that, again, thank you for, for joining us. And, uh, you know, keep your ears uh, open for the Hall of Fame votes. Uh, Going to be released, I think, what, two weeks, maybe a week from now. I don't know. It all starts blurring. But uh, until then, go Guardians. You've been listening to Cleveland's Team, a baseball history podcast with Guardians team historian Jeremy Fedor.